It's our job to help them make their software secure. If at the end they have all these things wrong, guess what? It's because our team, the security team, is not doing a good job. This is Lock and Code, a Malwarebytes podcast. I'm your host, David Reese. Our main story today is about insecure software. Repeatedly on this show, particularly in episodes last year, we have learned about software and online products that contained both simple and serious vulnerabilities. When we discussed the flaws in Kaseya VSA, that remote monitoring and management tool whose compromise led to one of the worst ransomware attacks in history, our guest at the time said that the flaws that he and his team discovered in the software were, quote, not advanced at all. When we discussed the efforts by agricultural companies to turn their physical equipment, like tractors and combines, into smart devices, we learned about basic flaws that allowed a group of hackers to uncover user IDs for pretty much every registered device in a company's database. And we learned that those user IDs could, through a simple comparison search with the Fortune 500, reveal what companies were clients of that agricultural business. And of course, when we discussed the famous app Clubhouse, we learned about a basic eavesdropping flaw that was discovered with no technical hacking requirements. All that was necessary was two iPhones. These examples, and many, many more, throughout cyber history, beg the question, what is going on with how our applications are being developed? Is this the work of a roving band of irresponsible software developers, or is there likely something organizational happening? Something with how we, as a community, develop and review and eventually ship software to the public. Today, to help us understand the answers to those questions and to find out what a perfectly secure system development lifecycle would even look like, we're speaking again to Tanya Janka, Director of Developer Relations of Bright, founder of the online training academy We Hack Purple, and author of Alice and Bob Learn Application Security. Tanya, welcome back to the show. Thank you, David. We're so happy to have you back and to learn about this thing that I think has been puzzling, at least me, for more than a year now. So let's get right into it. Like we said at the top of the show, right, we're going to spend a lot of today talking about insecure software. But some audiences might not be aware of what makes a product insecure to begin with. And so can you just help explain that, right? What makes something insecure? Okay, so... Technically, if there's any security flaw whatsoever, so a security flaw or a security bug, the product could be deemed insecure. So a flaw means the way it's designed. So usually that's a business logic sort of thing. And quite often you need a human to figure those things out. And then a bug is an implementation problem. So a security bug would be where you've coded something incorrectly, or you forgot to put in a check mark or whatever sort of thing that is part of your code to make sure it's secure. I would say though that for most organizations, you only need to have a certain level of security. So we often call this your security posture, and it's based on what threats your organization faces. So if you're gonna put stuff on the internet, in my opinion, it should be pretty darn secure. However, if you're guarding top secret secrets for your government, or if, for instance, let's say you have intellectual property that is incredibly valuable. So for instance, the COVID vaccine, the ingredients and how that's made and all of that, 
that would be extremely, extremely valuable intellectual property. And so something like that or top secret secrets for the government, those need to be protected as much as humanly possible versus like, let's say I sell really cool candy bars on the internet. There's a different level of security that I require because mostly people are just going to try to steal whatever money I have, or maybe they want to know, you know, who orders the most candy bars, but there's not that much sensitive information other than credit card numbers involved generally or employee information. And so usually I talk to a company about, okay, so how secure do you need to be? Because it costs more and exponentially more the further you go from pretty darn good to extraordinarily secure. That question, like you said right there, how secure do you need to be? Is there like a level let's take that candy bar company or let's take any kind of company that doesn't have to be top secret secret. I'm trying to understand then, you know, how secure do you need to be when you're trying to make, you know, a company secure and you're trying to check the security of the applications it relies on. Are you doing like a full audit then and then finding flaws and then thinking, well, this is just a candy bar company. They can accept that risk or or is it just like the audit itself doesn't go as deep? I'm already so curious. <laughs> like if the question is, I don't have to be that secure. What is the result then? Like what, how do you even figure that out? Yeah. Okay. So I am not an auditor. So I was a software developer then for around a year, I was a pen tester, and then I switched over into application security. And the way I like to look at it is, is that auditing and compliance are due to laws and regulations, while a secure system development lifecycle, sometimes called an application security program, that is you actually doing the work to make sure it's secure, while an audit is checking that you did it. And so the work I generally do is around, so you're doing a system development lifecycle, or SDLC. So those are the five phases that you have to go through to build software. And they are requirements, design, coding, so that's the super fun part, testing, and then release and deploy and maintain. So those are all sort of the same step. And if you're doing waterfall, you're doing agile, if you're doing DevOps, it doesn't matter. You still have to get some requirements of this feature you're going to build because otherwise you'll describe, you'll say, I want this feature and then I'll build you something ridiculously different because I don't have your brain. And so you have to write out and discuss what it's going to be. And so for each of those five steps, I like to insert at least one security step or activity. And so for just going on the internet, I would do one in each step. And then I would decide which things to fix that we find based on what security posture you need. But if you needed a top secret thing, I would probably do more than one activity for security in each one of the system development life cycles. So let me give you an example, candy bar candy. So we're like a company, we sell candy bars. We do like $2 million worth of business a year, let's say. So we're a small candy bar company, but obviously our candy bars are the best in our opinion. And we handle credit cards. So we need to be PCI compliant. So that's a compliance audit thing. Cool. And then if you're selling candy bars in California, there's like a privacy law there. If you're selling them anywhere in Europe, GDPR applies. So you do need to check those things later. You want to include those requirements in your project, but let's put all those aside because those are auditing things. So when you start off the project, I would say, oh, are you building a web app? Are you building an API? Are you doing a serverless thing? What are you doing? And they tell me what they're going to build in general. And I'm like, cool, 
here's a list of security requirements. So if you're going to have an API, I'm like, great, but it's going to be on the internet. So you're going to need to use an API gateway. And I need you to turn on these features and set them like this so I know it's safe. And they're like, okay. And so they build these things in. So I give them clear requirements and then we go to the design phase. And I'd want to meet with them. And usually I like to do threat modeling. And I know that there are people who are proponents of threat modeling that will make it take several weeks and it's very fancy and they have a million documents, but I just have a meeting for an hour and I ask, what are we doing? What could go wrong? What are we gonna do about it? And are we doing a good job? Are we doing a good enough job of mitigating these risks based on our security posture that we're comfortable with or sometimes called risk appetite? So if you're dealing with top secret stuff, you have to do a really good job of addressing these risks. But if you're not, you're just the candy bar app, it's like, okay, so what's most likely? People are gonna try to steal money. <laughs> so are we protecting the money the way we should, right? And and sometimes the answer, so like we hack purple doesn't ever touch credit cards. I looked at how much percentage we have to pay and I was like, guess what? I'm hiring Stripe and they can do that for me. And then we now never touch a credit card ever. So we don't have to be PCI compliant. We save a ton of money and time and it's fantastic. <laughs> and so sometimes the, the decision when you design is like, is it worth it? You know, like let's say most of their candy bars are sold in stores, but once in a while people order them from the website. I'm like, is it worth it to give 2.7% to Stripe if we're only going to do like four orders a month? Yes, it's totally worth it, <laughs> right? And so it's like, how much is this going to cost you versus like how much risk is involved? Because if you lose those credit card numbers, that's big trouble. You do not want to be on Visa or MasterCard's bad list. Let me tell you, I've had some clients mess that up and life is bad if you can't accept credit cards. I wanted to drill down something really quickly, like you said, where you do this threat modeling. You said, you, you know, you like it to be essentially like an hour long meeting rather than thousands upon thousands of documents and additional meetings. What is happening in those scenarios where it's taking so long to do threat modeling? So I've worked with government agencies, I've worked with really big enterprises, and I've worked with startups and medium small businesses. And I find that when a company gets very, very big, and especially if they're risk adverse, so banks and governments are really afraid of risk. Mm -hmm. And so they'll do like I remember in the Canadian government, we did this thing called SANA. So it was a security assurance and uh, authorization. And they would make you fill out a zillion forms. And it would be worded all in security words. And then they give it to software developers and it's super foreign language. And it's not like they don't give you an example of what one would look like. And the first time you get it, you're like, what the heck is this? And, and why do I care? And so I would often just do an interview and I would just say it in words I know they understand. So I'd be like, okay, so you have a bunch of data, right? And they're like, yeah. I'm like, okay, so is any of that data sensitive? And they'd be like, oh, no. And I'm like, so do you have social insurance numbers? They're like, oh, yeah. I'm like, so that's sensitive. So let's go through this again. What kinds of stuff are you gathering? And then I would kind of take it from there, if that makes sense. And then I would write down like, okay, so these fields are sensitive. Okay, cool. We got to pay attention to that. And then go through. But quite often security people will tell me, well, that's not scalable. And I'm like, well, you handing an 80 page template document to a dev and saying you have to fill this out before you can touch any of your code. That doesn't feel scalable either. I don't think what you're doing is actually making the software more secure. I think what you're doing is filing paperwork and like 
I remember I worked somewhere once and the software developer said, like, could you just tell me all the things you want so I could just do it now rather than having you tell me how much I suck at the end? And the security person wrote back and said, then that would be cheating. And I wrote back, I'm like, this isn't a test. They're not trying to pass (laughs) some tests. It's our job to help them make their software secure. If at the end they have all these things wrong, guess what? It's because our team, the security team, is not doing a good job. And so if they're asking for help, they're inviting us to that kickoff meeting or they're like, we're doing design and we're not sure about this. If we don't help them, we made a bad call. And like I've had people say, well, it's a lot more expensive to like do threat modeling or give them those requirements and like do secure coding training and stuff. And I'm like, okay, so what you're going to do is spend $25,000 at the end of every project to do a pen test. So that's exactly how much we would get charged every time for every single piece of software. And I'd be like, my budget's only 40,000, including the 25,000. So my staff's getting paid 15,000 to build this entire app, including me, including the project manager, everything. And we're going to pay some dude $25,000 to go pew pew with a web app scanner and tell us what it said. So I just bought a web app scanner and was like, you guys scan it. It's not hard. Press this button. (laughs) And then they would scan it, find the things when they're coding and then just fix it while they're coding. And then the pen tester would come in at the end and be kind of sheepish and be like, I don't know what's wrong. Like, yeah, because we did a good job. (laughs) Right. And I feel like, like when I heard of the concept of shifting left, so what shifting left or pushing left means is it's literally the direction of left on a piece of paper. So if you look at the system development lifecycle, there's five steps and it goes left to right because of the way the English language works. So if we're in Arabic, this does not translate whatsoever. And so if you go left on the page, you're earlier in the system development life cycle. I'm like, why don't we just say, I wanna show up at the very beginning and I wanna escort you the whole way through. I wanna help you along and make sure what you're doing is gonna be something that's safe and rugged and tough and that can withstand the risks on the internet. That's what I wanna do. And I feel like, um, I see a lot of companies where just they just hire a pen tester at the very end. I'm like, this is literally the absolute most expensive possible way that you could do your AppSec program if you're not doing anything else before. I'm like, and that app, so when I was a pen tester, David, I looked so smart. <laughs> I'd come in with my web app scanner and my like VM scanner and I'd just scan the things and I'd like check to make sure they're real things. And I'm like, boom, you've got like 20 things wrong and like 10 of them are critical. It's because the software developers had like zero guidance, zero assistance, zero tools to work with. It's not their fault. And they go to school, like university, college, or a boot camp. They don't teach them anything about secure coding. It's completely ridiculous. Literally, if you look at the lesson of Hello World. So when you first learn to program in any language, you always do the same lesson. It's Hello World. And so the first thing you learn to do is put the words on the screen, Hello World. And the next thing you do is you say, what is your name? And then the person types in their name and then you take it and you say, hello, so-and-so. And that is the exact recipe for cross-site scripting. They don't do any input validation. They don't do any output encoding. They just tell you, take what the user gave you and just mash it onto the screen. And we're literally teaching them how to do it wrong from the very first lesson. And it makes me very frustrated. There are so many things in there that I want to explore and to pull apart. I first wanted to just share, though, that that process you told me about, that 
this extremely frustrating process of, well, if we tell them something ahead of time, security developers ahead of time, then it's then it's like cheating, right? We have to we have to wait till the end, and it's just like that feels so unfair. And all it reminded me of is we are in tax season in the United States, and it feels like every single year we have to file our taxes, and only once we filed them does our IRS say actually you did something wrong but there's nothing beforehand there's no hand holding beforehand and it's not even hand holding there's no honest guidance you know and the crazy thing is that everyone kind of knows the IRS knows how much we have to pay like that's <laughs> they have that capability but there's no like there's no moment where they just say hey actually you know you you owe this much or actually we owe you this much because you know because of differences in payments. But that's something we have to do every single time. That's math we have to do every single time. And we don't know that we're wrong until we are wrong. And every single time that happens, it's like really frustrating because it feels like someone's keeping something from you for no reason other than bureaucracy. I, yes. yeah, I wanted we to- We changed that in Canada. So now if you just have one source of income, mm-hmm. it auto-populates it for you into the software. Oh. And then it says, do you have anything else to add? Oh. And it's so, so cool that they finally did that. That's lovely. We might get there in like 600 years. I don't know. <laughs> like, it's real bad down here. Um, I wanted to shift into why things are the way they are. And there was because there's a couple of things you mentioned there. You know, one of the questions of this entire episode is, is why are applications made the way they are? And there were a couple of things you already touched on here, right? One of them, most definitely, it seems like, you know, from the very first days, we're we're teaching folks in a way that doesn't incorporate security at the first step. And it also seems like we have these bad processes that are dictated. I don't know what they're dictated by, right? I don't know why that 80-page document ever became a thing to begin with. But I wanted to explore, you know, why are applications made with insecurities? Why do insecurities kind of just pass by? Why does, you know, all of this is the same question is, why does insecure software go to market? Okay, so part of the reason is because it's just plain hard. Like if you're trying to make, you know, an instance in the cloud and then you're trying to network all these things together and then you're trying to put, you know, a front end GUI that's beautiful and modern and fast and then you have like five APIs behind it and then they're calling a serverless app and then this calls a database. It's really quite complex. Like when I started writing software, David, it was not like that. I started writing software like I'm, I think, 95 or something. And you would just, it would all be one app. The whole thing was just one thing. And then it would talk to one single database. And then that was it. And now it's much more complex from an architectural standpoint, significantly more complex. And that's because people are demanding better, faster software, software that can do way more, software that's more beautiful, software that basically will do you know how there's that saying, there's an app for that, no matter what the person previously said. <laughs> Whatever <laughs> sentence they have, just at the end, you're like, there's an app for that. <laughs> and that's because software developers are trying literally to please everyone. And so it's just the job has become harder and the expectations on software developers, like before I just need to, to know how to code, but now apparently I need to understand operations and I need to understand not only virtual machines, but also containers. And then I'm like, oh, but containers need to be orchestrated. So now I need to learn Kubernetes. And before you know it, you're like, you need to be knowledgeable in all these different areas that are quite complex. So the problem is hard. So that's one part. The other part is that businesses need to be competitive. 
So if someone can have a much better experience, so I have switched providers, I've switched products, I've like moved my online community for WeHack Purple from one SaaS product to another, even though it was super painful and I lost many community members, i.e. customers along the way, it was worth it because the first platform was so bad and it like displeased the community members and it lacked all the things that they wanted. And I was like, I don't care if it's going to cost a couple thousand bucks and tons of time, we're moving. And so customers will break up with you (laughs) if you're not serving their needs. And so businesses are super competitive and security is invisible, right? Like customers don't know when they log into their bank or a different bank, oh, this one's actually significantly more secure unless they're very well-informed like I am. I pick on my banks, poor them. I'll tweet at them and be like, yo, this is not okay. Change it. (laughs) (laughs) And I'll send them really direct, specific information. I'm like, send this to your CISO or your AppSec person. And I just like write out a little report for them because (laughs) I am a pain in the... But it's good advice and I usually charge for it and I'm giving it to them for free. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I, I digress a bit, but it's basically like the average customer has no idea. They can tell, well, I had to wait 30 seconds to log in, but they might not realize that that means they're significantly more secure. They're just like, I had to wait and I didn't like that. Or they make me get a text on my phone and then I have to type six whole numbers into a thing and press enter. That's awful. And so because most consumers are not aware, and I don't think that they should be aware at that level, I don't think that's reasonable. But so if there were legit regulations and specifications from governments, that would help. So I'm not American. So the president released an executive order, I think it's called, where, you know, they said, you know, we want you to have software bill of materials. They had like a bunch of very high level, but excellent advice. I was like, great. Can you give us specifics so I can start cracking the whip on people? Like, please be more specific. This will be amazing. But it was a really good start compared to what I've seen from my own government, for instance, they just started giving public advice, which I'm thankful they're doing, but I want them to keep at it and be more in depth. And so I think that eventually someday there will be laws around this or at least regulation. And it'll say like, you need to be this tall to ride this ride. And if you can't do these four things, you're not allowed on the internet. And so whenever I talk to clients, I'm like, I, you know, like you need to at least do three types of scans and fix those things or most of those things. Otherwise, like, what are you doing? All the bad guys are on the internet. I don't know if you know, but everyone's allowed on there and not everyone is nice. (laughs) That's such a good moment. All the bad guys are on the internet. How very true. (laughs) It's true. And like, if you're dealing with money, there are criminals and period, they would like to steal money. So in 2020, I had to make a pitch for my startup. I was part of like a governmental startup programmy thing, which was super fun. And I looked up a bunch of numbers. And in 2020, I kid you not, 1% of the entire world's GDP went to cyber crime. $6 trillion. Why would you not be a criminal? I mean, besides the fact that you might have ethics and like not want to do things that are wrong, but it's so good. Why would they stop? I certainly didn't make that much money. Don't know about you. I didn't even get to measure any of my profits and trillions. <laughs> um, but that's that's huge. That's gigantic. And, it, and it's just getting worse and worse and worse. And so it's very profitable for them. And so if you can make yourself quite difficult 
to attack, they'll move on to someone else. Most of the time, they're not actually focusing on your specific business. They're picking you off because it's easy. And so, you know that joke, how fast does a bear run? It doesn't matter because I just need to outrun you because <laughs> he'll eat you. He'll be busy eating you and I can run fast. And it's similar like that on the internet, like unless for some reason. So for instance, if like if you're Microsoft, you're Apple, you're Google, you're very high profile. You have you should have a very, very good risk um, pay and very good security posture. However, like if you're selling, you know, $2 million worth of chocolate bars on the internet each year, you don't need to have that same level. What you need to be is super, super annoying to attack. And so someone's like scanning you and they're not finding anything. And they're like, this stinks. They try another scanner and they still, they can only find like a low or an informational thing. They're like, oh, and they like play with your fields a bit. And they're like, I'm not getting anywhere. Most attackers will just go somewhere else because they don't have a specific problem with you, the candy bar company, right? And they're like, this isn't working. I'll just go elsewhere. Quite often, because, you know, I did security testing, I'll just like be using a regular product and I just see security flaws and rate them. I'm like, oh, no, you've got a problem here. I need you to fix this if I'm going to be your customer. And I just report bugs. And lots of us do that, that are ethical hackers, but like if you're a malicious person and you're the type of person that enjoys theft or fraud or whatever, you see that and you're like, oh, right, I'm at home. And so if we can make it that you have to really, really work to find a flaw, most criminals will just ignore you and move on. And that is the general security posture that I recommend for every org as a minimum. You need to be very difficult to get into. Someone needs to like spend weeks to try to get past your stuff. And what I see on the internet is not that. You see, not as good as that quite often. Something you mentioned earlier in the episode, right, is this idea of pushing left, of being introduced earlier in the development life cycle. And I was curious as to why you didn't start left, like the, the industry, why security development wasn't even allowed at the starting line, you know, to begin with. Like, why have we allowed a situation where security comes in at the end? I just want to understand, why are things that way? Why have we deemed security to be a afterthought review rather than a incorporate at the first stage? Okay, so I don't actually know the answer to this question, but I have lots of guesses. <laughs> so one guess is that they thought it would be cheaper because they're like, oh, so then we're just paying this one bill, right? But when the pen tester comes at the end and gives the report to the developers, basically the software developers, they don't have time because they're supposed to be going to prod any minute. So they're like, I'll just do the super dangerous ones and I'll fix those and I'll slap it together with duct tape because I don't have enough time to do this. I think another thing is that a lot of companies are like, we've been on the internet for 10 years and we've never had a problem. So what we're doing must be good enough. And then once they suffer a breach, the entire culture completely changes. Like I've done work with companies where they have had significant breaches and been not basically the butt of jokes in the security community. And their attitude is always completely different. But what I would love to see, David, is that everyone has that post-breach attitude of, we have to take this seriously. And that's actually part of why years ago when I joined Microsoft, I'm like, they have had serious security problems and they now take it extremely seriously, right? And I'm like, I want to go to a place where I don't have to spend half of every day, just like begging people to let me do my job. Because I have found that with a lot of organizations, like I literally 
You might think this is funny, but I read a ton of books about persuasion, negotiation, and I had a friend that did international sales, and she used to do it on behalf of China to Canada, and then she moved to Canada, and then is now on the Canadian side. And I'm really glad because she is a fierce lady. <laughs> um, and she was explaining to me like different things you can do to try to like negotiate and get the things that you want. And so basically every conversation I have where I'm like, listen, I found some stuff. Can we talk about it? To me, I'm entering a negotiation. And sometimes security people will be like, you have to do this. You just can't go to prod. I'm like, I would like to let you know as a software developer, I can literally do anything I want. I can go to prod if I want to. I can erase your emails if I feel like it. Like <laughs> I have a lot of power in this org If you, because if you're a software developer, you have superpowers, literally. You can build apps right at your desk to do whatever you want. And that's literally their job, right? And I'm like, I can go to prod. I don't need your permission. I'm being obedient and following policy. There's no safeguard that's going to stop me, buddy. And so we need to talk to them like they're adults and not like they're children. <laughs> and we need to say like, okay, so I know you have a deadline that's in three weeks, but what can we get done in three weeks? And what can you promise me is actually going to get done in the following three weeks because I need a follow-up release. Because... I know you can't do all the things that I need you to do in the first one. So let's negotiate or legacy apps. So there's a lot of old software on the internet and it doesn't age like wine. It ages like cheese in the sun. Not good, not good. And so sometimes my conversations with them, they'll tell me, you know, if we change those dependencies, we have to re-architect our entire application. I'm like, okay, so then I need X amount of dollars from you so I can put like a WAF or a RASP, which is a type of shield in front of your app. And basically all the input that goes to your app, it analyzes it and only lets good stuff through. And there are flaws with that. They're not perfect. We don't necessarily need perfect to do a good enough job, right? And so I'm like, listen, you have a... Last year, I dealt with a 38-year-old app. I'm like, wow, it's almost as old as me. <laughs> and that is, that is an elderly application. And I'm like, we need to help this application along. And the first thing I want to do is put a shield in front of it. And the second thing I want to do is make a plan to re-architect part of it so that we can have modern, basically a modern architecture and remove a bunch of those old ancient dependencies. Like during log4j in December, so that was a vulnerability that was discovered in a super common Java library. And lots of companies I worked with, they would either tell me, oh, well, we're only using version one and it's version two that's vulnerable, so we're okay. I'm like, okay, so one, that means you're using 20-year-old software. That does not mean you're secure. So you are very, very insecure, but you are not vulnerable to this one thing. So you are still totally a dumpster fire. Let's be clear now. You do not pat yourself <laughs> on the back for this. Or some of them are like, oh, we just never did any logging. So we don't have to worry. I'm like, no. So... <laughs> Right. And so I'm like, we don't get to pat ourselves on the back for having stuff that's so ancient that it missed this vulnerability. We still have to do better. So let's make a plan. And Log4j was sort of good because we got attention from the other areas of the business and they started taking security more seriously. But it was also awful because there were so many discoveries as part of that. Like, oh, here's five repos of code that I never knew existed at our org. I guess I should start doing security on those. Ah, <laughs> yeah, I made a lot of discoveries that did not, they weren't surprises, they were discoveries. Everything that you've been talking about seems like all of these problems are extremely, one, they're multifaceted, right? They're coming from like every direction. 
and we've covered a lot of things. I was particularly, I thought this example, like you said here, like, you know, you wanted to work for a company where you could say, hey, like, I don't have to beg to do my job. I don't have to plead to be effective and valuable and to do things. And so there's a lot of stuff happening, right, where it's not like I kind of teased at the beginning, jokingly, like, it's not just like, there's this like one person out there that's just like, yeah, I'm making bad software. What are you going to do about it? Like, (laughs) it's quite different. And so I wanted to understand, like, how do we begin to address fixing all of this? Like, what can we, what can we do to make a better development environment just overall? So I'm super biased, right? But I think doing an AppSec program is the answer. So hiring one or more people like me and planning out a secure SDLC. So usually I just start with one thing. I'm like, okay, so this month I'm going to introduce, let's say, security requirements on all new projects. And so I'm going to show up at your meeting and be like, hi, I'm Tanya. I'm your AppSec nerd. I used to have business cards that said AppSec nerd at your service. <laughs> <laughs> and and start with that. And then maybe two months later, after everyone has like finally gotten used to that torture I'm doing to them of adding extra requirements to their project, then it's like, okay, so I'm going to start scanning all the repos for like different types of vulnerabilities. Or maybe I'm going to do dynamic scanning, like depending upon what type of access I'm allowed. And then I'm going to start like introducing myself to each team. Like, hi, I'm Tanya. And here's some things that are coming down the pipe that I want to do. And here's some stuff I found in your app. Can we try making it so we don't have any criticals? Can we start at that as a goal? I'm not going to run around and slap hands. I'm going to come up and just talk to you again and ask how we're doing. And I'm just going to keep coming and visiting you. And sometimes I bring cookies when they did a good job. And sometimes they get no cookies. <laughs> it, it sounds silly, but like I'll, I'll buy pizza for everyone and then go and teach them a lesson. I'm totally not above bribery with food. Like no financial bribery, but definitely carb and sugar related bribery. And like start introducing everyone to the idea of security and then slowly start making things mandatory. So at first it's optional and and some teams will be like, yes, finally, I've been waiting for this. And some of them will say to me already, oh, I already have a DAS scanner. Oh, I already like scanned my code for secrets. And when I stopped crying about how many I found, then I fixed them. Because it's not good the first time you scan an enterprise for secrets, you will find a lot of secrets that should not be where they are. And get a program going. And like, even if you're just doing one thing, so let's say you're just going to do pew pew with a web app scanner. Mm -hmm. You're just going to do a dynamic scan, that's it, of every app. That will give you a ton of information of like what level of security posture you're looking at, right? And Mm -hmm. I feel like, you could even do that without even telling the devs you're doing it. Like you could just get away with just scanning. If you have a link to all of their apps, you could just scan all of them or most of them even. So you just know what's going on. And then you can say to the board, like, listen, I ran some scans. It took me like two weeks. I scanned basically everything I could find and we are a dumpster fire. And so I want to start meeting with every team. Like give me permission to take one hour from every team per week. Right. And Start meeting them, start talking to them. And some of them, like 
there was this woman named Jenny last year and I gave her a report and she's like, okay, I'll see what I can do. And a week later, she's like, I fixed 100% of all, and I scanned it with four tools. I fixed 100% of what you found, Tanya. Then I got a QA person to test it. I think I'm ready to go to prod. Is that okay? I'm like, Jenny, I'd like to give you a hug. Because <laughs> that is not how the conversations usually go. And I'm just like, we had an all staff. I'm like, I need to give a shout out to someone because someone is amazing. <laughs> right? But then there's some teams where you're going to have to fight them. And I'll just leave them till the end, if that makes sense. So I try to get like everyone on board, my little security train and like start changing the culture. So the last people start to feel a bit embarrassed. And I still meet with them and I still talk to them and they're still not fixing things. And then eventually when everyone else is fixing things, I'm like, this is now a standard. We now have a service level agreement. And that team, I'm like, hi, so now you're gonna meet mean Tanya. You got to have like 11 visits with nice Tanya and now mean Tanya's here. (laughs) And you shouldn't have to lecture other adults about doing their job. But as a security person, sometimes you have to do that. And I try to do every single other thing I can do first before it's like, so I'm going to have to talk to your boss about this. Like that's last, last resort. And when you do that, you don't have a friend on that team anymore, but you do get a lot of things fixed very, very quickly. Like I've made proof of concepts before where I send it to their boss. I'm like, click on this link. And they're like, I'm not going to click on this link. Like we have 20,000 employees. You better believe it. Someone would click on it. So you click on that link and see what I did to your app in like 45 minutes. And they're like, this looks like prod. I'm like, that is prod. Fix this thing. You're being ridiculous. Everyone else has this. Everyone else is doing this. Like get on board. And then usually they feel embarrassed. And when you embarrass someone, they do not want to have meetings with you. They don't want to talk to you anymore. So if you're listening and you're considering this, that is your last resort because no one likes you anymore and it takes a long time to repair relations. But if I have to, I will because it's my job to protect this organization. And it doesn't matter if you have 20 apps and 19 of them are really good because as a malicious actor, I'm like, oh, that crappy one, the one that hasn't been updated since 2008. Yeah, I'll start there. Thank you. They do not care. They're not like, oh, well, this one's been pen tested 10 times. So I guess I should start there. No, they don't care. Earlier when you were talking about Again, this idea of pushing left, there was part of me that was like, okay, I can understand at the top level some of the some of the value, but much of the conversation has shown a lot of the value here, right? In a concrete way. One, very clearly, it's less expensive. Two, if you're building something that, like you said, relies on dependencies of older apps, older architecture, you can find that. And even if there isn't a flaw in those dependencies, you can be like, hey, you shouldn't be using a 38-year-old app. <laughs> like, that's a bad thing. There's also, you know, it seems there's a, a chance to avoid mean Tanya coming out, um, which is always good. You know, you don't want you don't want her to, to, you know, shame and embarrass someone, which is necessary for the company, but you just don't want to meet that person. That makes sense. But I wanted to wrap up here and understand then finally, right? What would in your mind, what is the dream security development life cycle for a product becoming secure, right? Like what timelines are drawn up? Who is involved at like day one? Who is, I think this is just as important, who is not involved? Is there such a thing as too many cooks in the kitchen? I, and so, yeah, it's, it's a broad question there, but what is the dream life cycle look like? <laughs> Okay, so my favorite life cycle or like AppSec style is called the partnership model. And so I first got this at the Treasury Board Secretariat in Canada. So I was a lead dev 
And this woman named Alicia came up to me and she's like, or she, she came to our kickoff meeting for our project. She's like, I'm your security person. I'm going to follow this entire project the whole way through. And if you have a security question, I'm your person. And if we get to certain parts, I'm going to do security stuff with you. And so then at the end, the pen tester has to earn his paycheck. And I'm like, okay, she was amazing. She, so she is a total badass. She like got promoted, promoted, promoted. She's like really super incredible, highly intelligent individual. So after I was like, what do you mean security activities? And she's like, we're going to do this and we're going to do that. And she's like, oh, by the way, I have a book for you. And she dropped the Microsoft Secure Development Lifecycle book on my desk. And I remember the sound it made because it was so heavy. (laughs) And she was so helpful. So I would say like, oh, they said they're going to scan my app. She's like, yes, they are. And they're going to find things wrong. And I'm like, okay, so then how do we do this or how do we do that? And so they came up with some rules. They're like, you're not allowed doing inline SQL anymore. You have to use parameterized queries. I'm like, okay, why? She's like, because of this thing called SQL injection and it sucks and we don't want it. And I'm like, okay. She's like, it's very bad. I'm like, okay. Because I didn't know anything about security. I went to college in the 90s. There was no security class. And she would just answer my questions. And sometimes she would say, I don't know, Tanya. I guess we need to go ask Google. Let's do this. And then she'd make time for me. And then we would just sit there like searching things out together. And she would admit when she didn't know the answer. And I'd never had a security person before do that. So her predecessor, who I will not name, he would say, if you were a good dev, you would know. And he would say like, you should never have made those mistakes in the first place. You just are bad at coding. And I'm like, well, I'm the senior dev here. So if I'm bad at coding, what does that make all everyone below me? Like, ooh. And I'm like, also them be fighting words, buddy. Like, (laughs) yeah, yeah. I learned later that guy didn't know very much about software and he knew nothing about AppSec and he just felt super insecure. And they're just like run this DAS scanner and he would just run. He had no idea what anything meant. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and so he was just being really insecure. And instead of like admitting and being confident like the Alicia lady, because she would just say, you know what? I don't know. Let's go find out why. I know we need to do this, but I don't know why. Let's go find out. And she wouldn't just shut me down or like make me feel stupid. And so we ended up being friends for years and years. We ended up making a capture the flag team for a conference and all sorts of stuff. Like I was like, you're amazing. (laughs) (laughs) So that they do this at Netflix and lots of other companies where basically you assign an AppSec person at the beginning of the SDLC and they help you through all of the steps. And so you can assign them to 25 projects because then that AppSec person will be a bottleneck for everything. But if they're on three or four projects at a time and then they do other app tech activities in between, like, hey, I'm not the pen tester, but I'll find the person for you. Or like, hey, I scanned your app with all of these things and here's what I found. Can we talk about it? Or by the way, you know, I'm going to eat every time you check in your code, I'm going to scan it. It's going to email you a report. But when your time comes to go to prod and you run it through the CICD, if I see those bugs are still in there, I'm going to break your build and embarrass you, buddy. So you better fix it. I'm giving you two weeks notice. I'm sending you all the stuff and you can run the scanner whenever you want. But I'm not letting you go to prod if you have, you know, criticals or highs or mediums. It's just not happening. So if you need help fixing them, you let me know. But like, this is the deal now. And so I try to remember when I was a software developer and like what would tick me off versus what would help me. And then I also, I ask what they want a lot. Like, so I need to do static scanning, let's say. 
you know, here's three tools that I'm thinking of using. Like, will you check them out with me and help me pick the one that your team will like the best so that I get one that you don't hate, right? Like this doesn't have to be awful. Help me serve you by giving me some feedback and some time. And I feel like that respect going back and forth, like I'm serving you, help me serve you better. So I would say doing the partnership model and specifically having at least one activity in each of the SDLCs or each of the steps of the SDLC. And then on top of that, making sure you test the what I call the three pillars of an app. So you need to do dynamic scanning. So where the app is actually running and you're interacting with it with a security tool of some sort, usually called a DAST, but pen tester could also do this. And then the second one is static testing. So sometimes called SAST or code review, but basically some sort of review of the written code that your team wrote. So that's really important, the code your team wrote. And then the third one is third-party components or libraries. And so this is usually called software composition analysis or SCA. But basically, all the code your team didn't write, but that's part of your app. So like a NuGet package, a RubyGem, your framework, all of those things, you're still accepting that risk. And so making sure they're not burning garbage. And then if you've tested those three things and you had some security requirements and did a threat model, by the time you put that app out, it's going to be pretty darn nice. And if you have the security person helping you through the things and it's like, we're stuck, you know, we keep submitting fixes and then the scanner still says it's broken. We don't know how to fix this or the scanner is giving us a false positive and having like that support and answering questions the whole way through. I feel like by the end, you could have a really nice application. I had a last question here, which is the thing you mentioned, right? Third party components, a review of that. Actually, of these three, dynamic, static and and third party which of those do you think gets ignored the most? Definitely libraries, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The one that people usually do first is DAS, dynamic scanning, because like one, it's it's really easy. It's the easiest one. <laughs> like when I first started, I was like, oh, this is so easy, SAS, it's so hard. And then also like, I like, you feel like a hacker, <laughs> right? Like it's so fun. <laughs> yeah. And like, it's just like, bing, 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 bing. It just like finds all of these things. And then usually people start with SAS, like static or like code review and just basically looking at all the team, their, the stuff that their team wrote and making sure that it's good. And then people just tend to put libraries last. And I'm like, they can be third. They can't be last. Like they still need to place somewhere in your priorities because like we saw with Log4j, like so Log4j was terrifying because all you had to do was copy and paste about like 50 characters of code that was available all over the internet Mm -hmm. into the address bar. And if it was vulnerable, you just owned their server. Like that's the most terrifying to like complete utter morons with zero technical skills. Like people who just have no idea about anything could just go to the site, copy it and just run around pasting it into things. And they could do like yeah. 10, 20 websites and they'd find one because Java is everywhere. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, this is so scary. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, I guess if anything that showed us, like you really do need to pay attention to your libraries and also malicious actors are paying very close attention to our libraries. So we must also do so now. Like you said, all the bad guys. Every single one of them are on the internet. Gosh. Yeah, they all have an internet connection. All I checked. <laughs> <laughs> you, 
<laughs> I called all the bad guys I know. I was like, do you have internet at home? They're like, I do. Yeah, I'm using it right now. <laughs> Tanya, thank you again for explaining everything, for detailing it. It was a fantastic conversation. So again, I just wanted to thank you again for coming on today's show. David, thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. To our listeners at home, we'll talk to you again in two weeks when we speak with Cindy Liebs about romance scams. Until then, stay tuned and stay safe. And remember, you can read all our cybersecurity coverage on Malwarebytes Labs at blog.malwarebytes.com. And please, if you like what you heard today, follow and review our show. <laughs>